Welcome to Politics and Right. Today we have two great stories for you. Uh, we have Victoria Young, who's a retired veterinarian, education activist, writer, and author of several books, going to discuss education. And of course, we also have Tom Bauman, who is the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. I want you guys to listen to these two uh, well-informed folks. Uh, these are two issues that play an important part currently in our body politic. I just love when we have those who, irrespective of what's going on in our politics, continue to engage. So without any further ado, please go ahead and sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and listen to uh, Tom Bowman and Victoria Young as they talk about climate change and, or rather, the climate crisis and education, respectively. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We have a very special guest for us with us today, Tom Bowman, president of Bowman Change, Inc., and author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, and co-author of... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Empowering climate action in the United States. Tom Bauman has never bought the idea that some problems are too complex to solve. With razor-thin-like precision, he slices through the Gordian knot of dis dispiriting misperceptions that lead to a sense of defeat when it comes to the climate crisis. The result is an inspiring and practical narrative that will leave readers feeling uplifted and empowered to create a future they are eager to embrace. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Amber. Well, look, first of all, let me ask you this. Um, it's a stupid question, but it's the first one I've got to ask. Why did you write the book? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. It's not stupid at all. I've been thinking about a book like this for a long, long time because I've been working for the last, oh, 10 or 15 years. No, actually, about almost 20 years on communication about the climate crisis uh, and science communication. And I've always been flummoxed by the fact that I took action to decarbonize my business. I feel empowered to work on it. I see other people who do, but the surveys all show that the vast majority of people feel dispirited. They sit on the sidelines. They don't think they have a role to play. And so I've studied that. And, and the opportunity came up last year with Changemakers Books to, to write a book very quickly. And it was, a, it was a great way to sort of gel all this thinking and work I'd been doing for quite a long time. Let me tell you what I love about your book. First of all, mm -hmm. it's not very long. It's that's the point. right. <laughs> you don't fill it with a whole lot of fluff. You know, that's I write books as well. And, um, you know, at, at 200 pages or so, uh, which is about what I need to tell my ent the entire stories that I normally tell, that's about all you need. But, you know, somehow we're getting these books that are just so, you know, so, big. Right. so I appreciate that. And you've used every word to tell a story. Now, um, before we get specifically into your book, um, you said you feel that people are dispirited about the climate. Uh, don't you think this has a lot to do with the different forces that are making them dispirited? In other words, forces that don't feel uh, climate change, or that, that, that what is required to uh, mitigate climate changes in their interests. So instead, what they do is they just pollute people's minds. Your thoughts? They do. There's a very active campaign that's been going on for a very long time, led by ideological libertarians and the fossil fuel industry to keep people from taking action. And, they, and so they question the science, they question uh, governance. They say that if we solve the climate crisis, government will intrude in our lives and ruin our freedoms and take them away, um, that our economy will crash. None of those things has to be true. Um, but it's an intentional campaign to protect our own financial interests. You know, sadly, uh, you said none of those things have to be true. They could be true, but it's also going to be true that if we do absolutely nothing, 
that what we know as America today, its coastlines, its uh, the peace in the uh, the peace and the weather and all of that will be no more. So I mean, uh, uh, we don't have a choice but to change either way that we go. Correct. That's absolutely right. And we're feeling the effects today. I live in California where the wildfires have been unlike, they've been unreal. I've never seen anything like this in, in all the time I've lived and grew up in California. The air is choking every year, you know, um, and whole communities are being burned to the ground. There's, there's intense storms in the Midwest and floods that are hundred year floods happening every few years. Um, so yes, exactly. We're already into it. And the question is, how far are we going to allow it to go? Yeah, it's amazing because a, a lot of people think we have to burn everything that we have in the ground, not realizing that in the primordial years when those things were being formed, we had different different organisms on the planet that mm -hmm. had different requirements that could ha that could absorb that sort of energy. But guess what? They died out. And that's, that's the remnants of their deaths, you know? Yeah. And you think about the fossil fuels in the ground have have accumulated over millions and millions, tens, hundreds of millions of years. And the idea that we would burn them all up in just a few generations and they never exist again or wouldn't exist for hundreds, millions of years more. That just seems crazy to me. And unnecessary, right? Absolutely unnecessary. Did you know? I mean, today, I don't know when the podcast will go live, but to Tonight, Ford is apparently going to release its F one fifty. Yes, the game changer. That's the most popular vehicle in America by a mile. And if that comes out electric and it's better than the gasoline powered car, look out because that means there's going to be a lot of hunger for it. Well, you know, Rachel Maddow did a, a great piece on it yesterday, and one of the most important parts that I think she did that 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 gives a lot of credence to electric cars is the ability to control torque. And the yeah. reason I'm saying that, I don't know if you're an engineer or not, I'm an engineer by training and I understand those concepts. And it was amazing watching that truck pull uh, several trains, yes. right? Like and something that a geared truck really wouldn't be easy, could, was, wouldn't easily do. And um, I think when those kind of folk who like pickup trucks see that, they'll see that environmental uh, being environmentally friendly does not mean, need, mean you have to compromise anything else. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the role of the business or the entrepreneur is to create green products that people actually like better than the products that came before. And, you know, um, Teslas are amazing cars. Uh, yeah. The Sun Leaf is a fun little car as far as it goes. Uh, the other electric cars are fun. But a truck is practical. I mean, there are things you can do in a truck that you can't do in a sedan. And uh, and so to see a pickup truck that's hugely popular go electric is going to, you know, depending on what they've come up with, is has the potential to be a real change maker. Of course, that means that uh, we have to get that infrastructure throughout the country with the 500,000 or so charging, charging stations around the country to ensure that those folks who make the leap and buy those cars, they do just fine. Yeah, that's right. And for a lot of people, I mean, most people would put a charger in at home unless right. you live in a, in a condo complex or an apartment building where you don't have control over that. But uh, if you do have, you know, control and you can put a charger in at your home, you just charge it up at night and it's ready to go the next day. Right. And you've got to drive an awful long way before you need to recharge. Most people aren't driving two or 300 miles a day. You do it on long trips and you need the capacity to charge up a bit, but, uh, but for daily driving, charging it overnight is easy. Right. Right. And, and probably not all that expensive as, as well, given the economy of these uh, new devices that are coming out. Yeah, that's right. They're cheap. It's electricity costs a lot less than gasoline and it doesn't spike. It doesn't go up right. and down and up and down and you never have to stop at a gas station. And then of course, uh, with, with a lot of people that get that, they're probably going to have solar cells on their homes, et cetera, mm -hmm. to sort mm -hmm. of mitigate that. Okay. Um, are we too late from your book? Are we too late? <laughs> Yeah. To solve that, the crisis. Uh, first of all, we're talking uh, about the book uh, titled, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? And you know, um, I'm going to tell you, Tom, I've always thought that it was simple if we wanted to make it so. Mm -hmm. But I mean, 
the the objections come to those who are vested in the old technologies and don't and see that move to be a bit more expensive than they would like to make. So is it too late? Yeah, that's such a great question. And the, I think the answer resoundingly is no. We're on a we're on a trajectory, right? We've changed the climate some already. We can't go backward unless we invest super heavily in in technologies to pull carbon out of the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that may become attractive in the future, you know, it's in development now as technology. But we can choose how far we let this advance. And and we've been taught most of us about climate change by scientists and scientists study complicated things, complex systems. Uh, The climate system is really complex. And so we've been taught to think that it's really complex. And we've been taught to think that the responses to it have to be really complex, but that's just an interpretation. That's just a, a way of looking at it. And if we set that aside for a minute, we discover that really all we have to do is stop burning fossil fuels and do it very quickly. And when you think about that, it makes the it makes the climate crisis accessible to everyone, to every business, to every household, to every person, uh, to every local government, and that's a lot easier to deal with than a, than what looks like it's a huge global problem. You know what is interesting, Tom? Um, and as as bad as this pandemic was, where we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people around the world, what I think this showed us, however. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. With the decline in usage of gasoline and fossil fuels, we didn't die. We right. weren't superbly uncomfortable. Uh, the economy was a lot uh, was a lot less, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we consumed a lot less. That's so right. We all and 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 still, most Americans got a bit fatter. Yes, so, they did. <laughs> uh, so the truth of the matter is, the pandemic, as bad as it was, and and I love your thoughts on this seem to prove that we could have massive reduction in fossil fuels, use of fossil fuels, without having a, a, a devastating effect on our personal economies. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We've been taught to think that society can only change very, very slowly and very, very incrementally. But last March, a year ago, the world suddenly stayed home mm-hmm. everywhere, worldwide. And it all happened in about three or four days. You know, when the when the World Health Organization said this is a pandemic, it's really dangerous. Everybody stayed home. And what happened? The streets got quiet. The sky cleared up. The air got fresher over major cities. We were all living in fear. But but if you took the time to notice, our world became a more pleasant place and people were finding ways to connect. You know, there's this great video from Italy of of you see these wine glasses attached to long sticks and they're clinking. And as the camera zooms out, you realize these people are on their balconies across this narrow street from one another, having a happy hour together in their isolated pods in their apartments, right? But they're finding ways to connect with their friends and neighbors. And now we've discovered most people who worked at home don't want to have to commute and go back to a corporate office. Um, They'd rather work at home and they can be productive at home. This could change the world in big ways, and it happened in a heartbeat. You know, it's amazing because I told uh, when this started to occur, I did a few of my programs, my shows, and I said, you know, this is going to change how we work forever. And amazingly, companies like Woolworks, they are sort of concerned because it doesn't fit their business model. And they're now trying to shame people back from working at home to going back to the office. Notice I said working. I didn't say slobbing at home. Right. That's right. Working at home because it affects their bottom line. So there again, once again, we see where companies are, they're not looking at the better, what's best for us all or for the environment. Right. Just for their own personal (laughs) bottom line. You know, I've been a business owner myself for about 30 years, small business. And, and you have to, you have financial obligations you have to meet. 
But if you own a business, you're in the, your primary business, no matter what you do is adaptation. You're changing. The markets are changing. The rules are changing. Yes. are changing. You're always thinking, how do I remain viable in this new environment I'm in? Exactly. That's every day. So uh, yes, there are, there are ups and downs. You win some, you lose some in business and that's not fun. You know, for anybody, we need to create a soft landing for people as best we can and create new opportunities. But but that's happening all around us. New opportunities are emerging and we shouldn't be afraid of that. And, you know, uh, one of the, the benefits of that, again, is we get a profit and that's that's a whole rationale. We take the risk and we get a profit. Those of us who do these business things. Now, what do you mean by hang the climate crisis upside down? Yeah. So I described earlier this Gordian knot of complex systems that that is the climate. You know, it's the atmosphere and the oceans and the polar ice caps and the way and the biosphere and the way plants and animals interact with atmospheric chemistry and all of this complicated stuff. And then we've been taught that when you when you want to solve a piece of the climate puzzle, and we've been talking about electric cars and transportation, you start pulling on that and now you're pulling on technology and supply chains and international finance and those things affect food supply and energy generation and and geopolitics and all of a sudden you feel like you're pulling on you started with one thread and you're pulling on this enormous knot that you can't figure out how to untie that's what it feels like to most people i i was an art student in college and i was working on a painting one day that i just couldn't make work you know i i tried changing colors i tried shifting the composition it was just a a it just wasn't working and my teacher came up behind me and he said i tell you what you do hang it upside down and go home because when you see it tomorrow upside down you're going to see what's wrong with it because you'll see it completely differently right, right. and as a design office owner, I literally did that many times. And that's how you figured out which designs were working and which ones to throw away. But it also applies to other kinds of issues. In other words, if you're stuck, if you can't figure out how to solve a problem, ask yourself, is there an assumption that I've made that's part of every solution I've tried? Is it a require a technical requirement that somebody gave me? Is it an assumption I'm making about how things work? What is the one thing that's consistent in all of your in all of your attempts to solve it? When you find it, the bigger it is, the better. The more sacrosanct it is, the better. Set it aside and see what happens. In my experience, what happens is you suddenly discover all kinds of new ways to think about it, new opportunities. And you and that, expand the horizons. Exactly. And, and it, so it disrupts this familiar pattern of thinking that keeps us stuck. And the assumption that we make that's most troublesome, I think, on climate is that it's too complex for you and me, right? Only technical elites somewhere, somewhere in the world are going to come up with a master plan for the globe and everybody's going to buy into it magically and we're going to solve the climate crisis. And we all know it doesn't work that way. Right. But if we set that aside and we say, what's left? Well, all we have to do is stop burning fossil fuels and we need to do it quickly because we don't want this to continue and, and we don't want to fail. So there's a slogan in the book, right? Stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. When, when that becomes your mantra, you start looking at everything you do in your workplace and in your home life a little differently. And I know this from experience because I did this with my small business, you know, as a 2000 foot building and 12 people, we were, we got measured by the climate registry. So I had independent measurement of our carbon footprint and, and we reduced our emissions by two thirds in 15 months, saved money. And nobody could tell that our lifestyle had changed. Right. Right. But you made a difference, but, it, and it shows how much waste we take for granted in our normal way of thinking. And that when we disrupt it by hanging the picture upside down, we discover, oh, there are ways to solve this and make the world I'd really rather live in. We recently had a woman on here. I don't remember her name. Uh, she talked about waste and it was amazing how much we waste and how easy it was to mitigate that waste. So, I mean, just doing little things that all of us could do from Ziploc bags to other things, you know. Uh, and I'll tell you a little story that 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 reveals how dumb we can all be, how stupid I was. Um, 
our business was to design exhibits for museums and trade shows, things like that. And, and we didn't build them. We had exhibit builders uh, who were located about 60 miles from our office in Southern California. So people had to commute through Los Angeles traffic to get to work. And then you drive to the, to the meeting when you had to have a meeting at the shop. And then you drive back 60 miles to the office and then tired frustrated, stressed. You still had your deadlines to meet. You'd stay late and you'd go home late. And we lived with this for years. We just thought it was the way business worked because mm-hmm. everybody did. Well, two of my employees moved all the way to Palm Springs and had to commute all the way to Long Beach. That's a, over a hundred miles through rush hour traffic every single day. At least they carpooled, but we lived with this for a couple of years. And when we decided to decarbonize, it made me look at that situation differently and say, holy cow, that's a lot of pollution, right? And so we tried an experiment. You two guys who live in Palm Springs, you can only come to work once a week and you work at home the rest of the time. And if anybody needs to meet with a shop, schedule it so it's the first thing in your day or the last thing in your day. So you do it on the way to work or on the way home. And it took about a month for people to adjust to a new style. And then I saw the spirits in the office get lighter. People were happier. They weren't so mm-hmm. tired. They, were, they got to go home on time. They weren't so stressed, right? And this is what we had always wanted, but we'd never gone looking for the thing that was holding us up, right? We're all doing this with carbon every day and with waste every day. And all, our, all most of us have to do is turn the picture upside down so we start to see that stuff and say, holy cow, I can eliminate that waste. You know, Tom, we could we could go through all these things that I think enlighten quite a few people for for hours. Unfortunately, we only have 30 minutes. So there's a couple of chapters I want to discuss with you. And and this one kind of the name, I, I think you were trying to be a little bit. What's the word that I want to say? You wanted to put a little sting here. You said um, climate justice and a white male. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself. Yeah. Last year was the was the year that. Americans everywhere just saw just how how violent and and unstable the lives of African-Americans, people of color are in the United States. We've always heard from climate scientists that that low income communities and people of color suffer the most and have the fewest resources. Right. And we know that there is structural racism in our society. But we saw it with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. It just it, it came home to everybody. And one of the things I heard people saying is, you white people need to start having your own conversations about race. Um, and I'm a white male, right? I, I, I benefit from all the privileges of being white, well-educated and male. And so I wanted to write a chapter that starts to confront that question. And in, in its, it's, um, it's, I don't present the answers. I don't, it, I would say it's a little clunky, you know? I mean, how can we not be clunky when we stumble into this? Um, because in our own lives, as, as white males, whoever, however we're situated, we learn to accept cultural racism as we progress through school and into our careers. And, uh, and we understand the reward system that we have to play by in order to be successful. And that, that is a very biased system. And so we find ourselves in this situation and we don't want to be here and we don't know how to get out of it. And, and I've been really, really fortunate in the last year to work on this action for climate empowerment project with a diverse group of people in relationship with, with indigenous leaders, people of color from Puerto Rico and the United States, um, members of the historically black colleges and universities, and to begin to have the experience of relationship that allows that allows a person who's uncomfortable about racism and is a white person start to be in genuine relationships with people that can make a difference. And that's, I think, what a lot a lot of people need to do. Um, so I, I was trying to sort of, um, uh, uh, just be vulnerable and honest and say, Hey, look, I'm no better than anybody else. I grew up in this world and I've uh, unconsciously adopted all of the problems. How, how do we get beyond this together? Well, you know, I was, uh, when I saw the chapter at first, I kind of giggled and then I said, let me, let me read 
bits and pieces of this thing. And I like, I mean, first of all, it, it, it's good that in the chapter you were able to express that there is in fact systemic racism and environmental, uh, the environmental impact also plays a big role in there. I mean, cities are uh, places where uh, people of color live in general because of the way it's structured, it's hotter and suffer more climate damage than, than places that are more wealthy, which more wealthy generally defines more white. And I, I was glad to see that you had the, that you are able to stitch that into the book because I think over the overbearing um, statements of racism all of the times is better catered in a fashion that people can you know can actually see with the the lives. So I think think you did a great job of that. But you know, my question to you is, um, how long have you realized of? Uh, oh, first of all, I, I, there's a thought. Grogan, the podcast Grogan, I don't know if you, you know who he is or, or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a, he got in a bit of trouble because his statement was, because of the wokeness of society today, uh, soon white men just have to shut up. And I just read that this morning. And I hadn't planned on asking you this, but since you had that chapter, I said, what, what's your thought about that? Because I, I really like to know if that's how a lot of white men are feeling right now, that because... Um, everybody is yeah. now saying we want a piece of that action if that's how white men are feeling. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words um, for for writing that chapter. I'll tell you that some of my white friends have said, "What? Why is that chapter in there?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And this is this is reveals our starting point, right? Um, and there is a there's a degree to which um, people feel insecure with their own success or their own position. Right. We're always trying to to ensure that that our social position is sound. Mm-hmm. And and for an awful lot of white people, I think um, our, our common thought is that if we give more power to people of color, we're going to lose power ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that feels scary. And when you finally dig into this and you finally are in relationship with people who don't look like you and come from different backgrounds from you and you, and you, and you care for their welfare as much as you care for their own. They're your friends. They're your colleagues. They're, you discover that, that you discover what they have to live with that you don't have to live with. I can tell you from my own experience, it's like, man, give these people power. (laughs) They need power. Uplift them give them power. I don't need to hold it. Um, I, I told somebody, you know, you don't get to be the white savior when you get into relationship with people of color. The good news is you don't have to be the white savior. Right. What you is discover that, that this is really, this is a dialogue. Um, let me, let me tell you something, Tom, voices like yours are necessary, especially as a white man. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that that you 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 are you're more out there more in in people's spaces to 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 promote that kind of a message and because i think it is so important uh, I, the, the, the good thing about it is this um those who have lived through the lack of privilege are not trying to take away privilege from anybody those who have had the lack of power are not trying to disempower anybody they're just seeking to have the same level and if that message could be conveyed to specifically the white man that that you know uh, yeah you need not fear that what some and it's interesting because it's a minor amount of i mean that's just how power works it's it's not a race thing it's a it, i mean and 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 i get in trouble a lot of for saying this but once we if you really believe that race is a social construct, mm-hmm. you have to understand what racism is then. And then you look at pigmentation and physical characteristics and all of that quite a bit differently. Yeah. And I'm at the stage in life where that's, I've, I only look at race as a social construct, so I have no fears about any of it. So I hope men like you, white men like you, in, in, in the messaging that you have with your environmentalism and all the great books that you write, that you're, you're able to cater it as you have in your book here. I just found it fascinating. Just like your white friends asked you, why did you have that chapter in there? I look at you and I said, you're a smart man to 
weave that <laughs> chapter in there. Well, thank you. It's the beginning of a of a conversation that it's my throwing a stone in the water as a beginning of a conversation. Um, you have to learn to listen. You know, you have to stop. We have to stop assuming we have the answers and we we work hard to become experts in our lives, in our careers and in various ways. And then we think we're experts. Right. Mm -hmm. We think we're the people who know. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there are technical things I know, but that doesn't mean I know how to solve a uh, find right. a solution in a community somewhere else or even here. It needs to be created together. Um, and when you finally are willing to let go of that and it, and it's disruptive, it, it's a little uncomfortable at first, but if you'll take the step, then you just discover how much goodwill and capacity and, and opportunity there is to create the world we really have really always really wanted want. to. Let me yeah. tell you, Tom, um, it's been actually a very, a pleasure speaking to you. Um, and one other thing, most people are good. I mean, everybody, most people say. are good. I Look, uh, we've been speaking to Tom Bauman, president of Bauman Change Inc. And author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. It's, I usually ask beforehand, is there something you'd like to say that I forgot to ask you? <laughs> um, if people are, are really intrigued by this, I'm going to give you a website that people could, that's not my own. Uh, mine's kind of obvious, tombowman.com. There's a, there's a website called ACE, A-C-E framework.us that reports on dialogues just like this with a really diverse group of people who are seeking to make climate change in the United States in really productive ways. Tom Bowman, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. We have Victoria Young. She is an involved, informed, and active parent of the No Child Left Behind era. Victoria said that she witnessed one of the biggest forces in public education ever, bar none. Victoria saw that my, with her own eyes, the damage her school suffered at the hands of standardization and privatization. But today she discusses an issue that while superficially not connected in, uh, to her passion, actually is. And what is that subject today? Anti-intellectualism. Victoria, how are you doing today, my friend? Very well, thank you. Before we even get started, tell us a little bit about you because I've always been intrigued. The veterinarian still, right? Um, I actually retired this year, but it would be the third time I've retired. Oh boy! <laughs> so so I, bet I was kind of, I guess you would say, called back into service during the peaks of COVID. Um, but technically now I am retired and I'm hoping to stay that way. But I did, I was practicing for 37 years. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think I'm entitled. To a I think you're entitled, but you don't look like you're practicing for 37 years at all. I mean, yeah. Um, I guess some of us keep well, but anyhow, what, what, what can I say? But look here, um, first of all, before we, we, we really get into this anti-intellectualism thing, um, and I think it really, the genesis is really well before, because, I mean, if you take a look at what the, the passion that you've had, tell us a little bit about that school thing, about the let, leave no one behind era. Tell me a little bit about that before we get into the subject at hand. Well, I was I had some time um, to actually because of my schedule and, and working at the time I was working um, some on call time. So I had some time during the school day that I could volunteer. And I started doing that on a very regular basis. I, I was there every week um, and you could just see the change. Uh, it put a lot more pressure on the teachers. You know, you have a whole new uh, system, basically, that you have to learn. And what also happened is because it's focused in on math and reading, we saw them cut out a lot of other things because you had to focus on getting kids up to the standard on the test. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you suffered from being labeled as failed, but those weren't really the labels. It was needs improvement. Um, but we already knew which schools needed improvement. And of course, as everybody knows, a lot of that is related to social economic status of the community. Those are the schools that need help the most. 
Um, so the tests weren't really telling us anything new and they were occupying instructional time. And that was probably the worst thing we could do. And I think we're, we're seeing the results decades later of that. And we lost the arts, we lost civics, we lost a whole lot of things that really made what a, a well-rounded American is supposed to be. So um, you're actually right. If people taught to the test, people know how to take tests, they do well, and they turn out to be not all that good socially or not that good, well-rounded American altogether. Well, you know, and, you know, and, and I don't, I, I, I think you can see a direct correlation between the demise of our educational system, anti-intellectualism, and almost going back to the era of the know-nothings. Your thoughts on that? Right. Well, and so one of the other things that was cut out, not in all schools, and this is why we have trouble um, explaining this to people who had kids in schools that had a lot of resources, is their resources and their time on science in particular was not cut, like we saw it happen in schools that were in fear of failing the tests. Um, so we had a lot of science cut out of there. So th there is that direct correlation with teaching science correctly, you know, not just facts, but learning, learning to think and critically evaluate something. A lot of that has been lost in a couple generations. Um, so I think that is starting to show up. But I always want to remind people that it isn't all at the education system to blame that anti-intellectualism is a thread running through American society and always has been. And, and it's, it's based on emotions, skepticism. Interestingly, <laughs> I want to read just one short passage in your piece. Mm -hmm. It's deep in your piece, but I want to start from the beginning, but it's deep in your piece. But I think it explains a lot. And it's even explained this stuff about just teaching to the test. You said or you said from a quote, we don't educate people anymore. We train them to get jobs. Right. And that came from a professor. So they're, they're seeing that at the higher education level. Um, a lot of people became aware of that in K-12. A lot of parents are not happy about that because it basically is a tracking system. Um, if you're testing and then you're putting it in there and you're getting advice, which we did before when, when we went to school, same thing happened, but it was usually a single test. It wasn't all the way through and it wasn't so early on in your, in your learning career. You know, you're still an adolescent. You don't know what you want to do. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that we, we see happening. And it's gotten worse with technology because the system, of course, I think we talked about this once before, you know, is this human development, capital development system tracked with all the data and the data is all linked. So that that became a real problem that people haven't addressed yet. Um, so, and we're basing that we're basing recommendations for kids on a pathway earlier in their career. A lot of times that isn't necessarily maybe what they want to do later in life. I mean, I guess I was one of those late bloomers that I didn't know I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I was told I should be something else. I mean, so, so often that is the case, you know, so often that is the case now. You're on a show called Politics Done Right. So, you know, we're going to start to uh, hit the politics domain at some some, some point. And uh -oh. actually, I, I want to hit it because interestingly, I think you hit it up pretty early on in the in the piece. And uh, where um, you actually said many and many people anticipated the arrival of confrontational politics, yet most overlook anti-intellectualism as major contributing factor to our nation's toxic uh, political divide. Yeah. And. I wanted to put that on a billboard. That was billboard material right there. So go ahead and take that, run with it. Okay. So when you look at anti-intellectualism, and I'm not a political scientist or a, a social scientist, um, but just based on a lot of the things I've read, and you know, particularly, I'm going to grab this book, mm -hmm. particularly this book that gives a lot of history. And I'm no, I'm not a historian either. Remember, I'm a veterinarian. I'm your right. working. Well, who's the author? I think I know the guy. Uh, Richard Hofstadter. I know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I met him actually. Wow. 
I think I, I think if I'm not mistaken, in de- if it's the same person, I met him in at a coffee party retreat in I want to say Denver. I think it's the same guy. It has to be before 1970, though, because that's when he died. Okay, well, no, it's the wrong person then. It's the wrong person then. And I'm not I'm not old enough to be the. Uh, you see, I mean, the, I didn't think so. Yeah, yeah, okay. That 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 wouldn't be him because uh, at a coffee party we met a guy with, and, and he wrote a book that had a similar title, and we actually sat down and had lunch. I thought that was the same guy. <laughs> so when I read this book, um, and it was quite some time ago, mm-hmm. and I. I was reading it and thinking to myself, so wait a minute, you know, what am I? I I don't consider myself an intellectual. I don't work in a university, um, you know, so but on the flip side, I could see what they're talking about with anti-intellectualism, that you may have some resentment towards people that you see as the elite intellectuals. Well, let me stop you. I need to stop you there because you just said. First, you classified, you claimed to be not, you never considered yourself an intellectual. Then you said that people may have resentment for intellectuals. But you said you weren't an intellectual and you never had those, any kind of resentment to those you probably considered intellectual, right? Um, you know, that's hard to say. I think when you get rejected, mm-hmm by groups of intellectuals like and this is what i think i see going on in the country i most commonly hear people say i'm not being heard you know they're not listening yes i hear that a lot so you're gonna that's resentment and i i gotta say i i've probably suffered from that from time to time that's what i mean when i was reading this i was thinking is that me he's talking about? But further into the book, you come to realize that we are all intellectual. Mm-hmm. We all have the ability to reason. And that's what, you know, intellect is, is, is reasoning and, and asking why and gathering more information and coming to rational conclusions. You look at the Constitution or, or what the Constitution was based on. And it is really based on rational thought. You know, the whole civility thing is based on us all being rational. So, you know, I started looking at this and looking what's going on with with the culture now. um, And I see why some things are happening, but still working on this idea of so how do you approach that? Um, Because we certainly don't want to let it go on and get worse. Um, so one of the things, of course, I had suggested is, I mean, we can help some with education, but that's down the road. That's the next generation is coming up. Um, you know, we have to do something immediately to try and solve this problem that's rising and before our eyes. <laughs> um, that has risen. Yeah. Before I now, first of all, let, let, let's take that. I, I think I want to twiddle back a bit because, um, uh, you know, I, I hear I, I hear intellectuals be or I, I hear the attack on intellectuals, which a lot of times may be justified uh, as far as thinking one is better than the other. Right. But I wonder often if that isn't, you know, who calls themselves an intellectual? You remember what you said earlier? It's all about not being heard. My show is a show that goes out and say everybody it's it's your show. Everybody mm-hmm. has a voice. And I want to make sure that everybody's heard. That's why everybody can get a chance to say what they need to say, right? Right. Is not being heard a thing on intellectualism or is it a thing of cliques and and, and tribes? Right. Yeah. So it's kind of a couple different things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The anti-intellectualism is built, you know, it's it's a it's an attitude. Mm-hmm towards, let's say, towards experts. You could you could use COVID as an example also. Right. So what we've seen is this cultivation of it, though. And so what you do is tap into a truth. Right. Now, everybody, you know, probably has heard, if you do something wrong in medicine, 25 people are going to hear about it. Right. right. <laughs> so there is a, a grain of truth that things can go wrong. Now, you take that grain of truth 
and then you start turning people against experts saying they're wrong, now we're now we've tapped into the anti-intellectual piece of, in all of us, and we're building on it. We're building a movement against truth, basically, against facts. Because, you know, the people that we consider intellectuals, you know, the ones that are the experts in their field, they spend their life, basically, learning about a one particular topic. Mm -hmm. And then for us to just push that all aside and say, nope, not even going to hear it. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because there are, you, people resent them as an elite. And that's what I'm saying is intellectuals aren't necessarily elite people. If you listen to people talk, eventually, and this is what I learned practicing medicine, is if you listen to them tell you a story about their animal, eventually they're going to tell you something that's very important. And I think that happens in all kinds of conversations, you know, in the in right. It's amazing because uh, you just said something that my daughter said a couple of days ago, uh, as far as listening to patients. Uh, she's uh, in her uh, fourth year med school, had some health issues. But what she said is um, people got on her case for doing a lot of listening to people. But uh, when she had a conversation with a patient, she learned more about that patient's ailments based mm -hmm. on that simple conversation she's having with the patient, as opposed to just going and ask the patient, what's wrong? Tell me what is it that ails you? So it's, it's amazing. And she said she can walk out of a room and know, well, this, this, and that, just from having that conversation. So what you just said is actually something in practice. You've, you've seen it with your, your, uh, your uh, patients and, you know, she saw it, saw it, saw it as well. Um, now, you talk about solving this, right? Mm -hmm. I, I recently wrote a book called um, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. And the idea was to um, not appease anybody, but let people answer their own questions. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea being is um, when I talk to people, I usually, for everything that they say, I ask them to go the next step. What's the next step? How do you get there? How do you get? But it's a very tedious task to do that one-on-one. -on -one. Yes. So my question to you is, you, you, may, you are the one who brought it up. You said, yes, the kids later on, we can start educating folks later on so that they would grow up in that proper mindset. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how do we handle those whose mindset is already developed that we need to somehow change? And, uh, you know, how, how do we do that? Well, it, like you said, it's tedious and it's having the conversations. Um, so we don't have very good conversations on social media. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so it is a matter of having those conversations, you know, have them at every opportunity. But I think there's one question, you know, that we really need to encourage more people to ask. And that is just the simple question, why? Mm -hmm. You know, look at what has happened to the media. And I just I just heard someone today on, on on social media saying that they don't listen to any news. <laughs> OK, so we've cut out all of that because there is this grain of truth, right? That that the media is owned by what, six companies? Or right, something? exactly. The okay. main the mainstream. Yeah, right. And so they have control. So there's that piece. But then they're being told by who they're listening to not to listen to any of the news. So, again, that's this, you know, this, this cultivated anti-intellectualism. So now it's done exactly what I believe I mentioned in the, in the blog. Peace. Yes. That now they're, where's the source of information for this person? The only source they have is that one person or one organization that they trust. So it's it's a matter of building trust, too. Um, but, yeah, I know it's going to be a, a long, hard road. <laughs> well, I like I like this from your piece, though, um, uh, Victoria. Consider this. You know what I want to say? Consider mm -hmm. this. We are all capable of logical, reasoned thought. Mm -hmm. But it does require a concerted effort to resist being ambivalent. Consequently, 
it requires people devote a little more of their time to looking for truths, thinking clearly, and calling out propaganda and propagandists. That's the last paragraph in mm-hmm. your piece, which I found uh, that that is that is a coup de grace. Now, how do we actually implement that? <laughs> well. I think that I've seen some of that going on on social media is is when you even are informing people of the different techniques used by propagandists. And again, I think it's that matter of can you get them to wonder if it's happening to them? If what they're if what they're seeing is propaganda or is is it real news? Is it real fact? Um that I think that's one way we can do it. We also have to, I think, you know, and we're seeing it happen. We have to build a movement where we're getting, you know, people like yourself, I guess myself, although my thing is education, um, but that they're reaching people where they're at. And I'm afraid with politics, sometimes we're, we're really talking over people's heads. I mean, the terminology in political science is not something that I learned in school. I didn't have political philosophy. Um, I just happened to have a lot of books <laughs> right? and some time to read. You know, I want to stop you there because what you just said is so important. You said you didn't take political philosophy. Actually, very few of us did. But uh, both of us being involved with certain type of organizations, we can understand political, but most Americans don't. And in that language, you know, I mean, it it, it is funny because, you know, we talk uh, instead of talking about helping people. A lot of times we start using the technicalities of the procedures to help people. Uh Oh, you're cutting out. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Oh, yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what what I'm saying is it's interesting what you're saying, because as it turns out with the political thing, uh, when you speak in that just political language, Mm -hmm. some people that don't understand it immediately tune you out, which you need them not to do so to to make that change. Right. Right. And even, you know, it's almost like speaking a second language. Right. Right. When you say a word uh, and usually it's a label of some kind, people that aren't you know, don't spend time reading these things. You have to take a minute to translate what they're talking about. And then you've lost train of, of what of the actual conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, you know, people that are writing, if they're really wanting to make a point. And the other thing I see out there in journalism is try, you know, we're not seeing enough people try to resist just throwing the label out because once you criticize and put somebody in their spot, they're not likely to hear anything else you say. Right. That is that, you know, that is so, that is so true. And on my program, we have all these different, this, this thing, you know, the, the, the one good thing I like about politics is we have a lot of progressives. We have a lot of, uh, they, a lot of people think they are trolls, but they're not trolls. They're there every single day. Our right wingers are there every day and they enjoy talking. And, and, you know, we converse. And I think it's important because um, people don't. One of the the places that I go is I started to when I'm a one on one is tell tell people all of what what I'm really about, what I want for society, what I want people to see. Mm -hmm. And most of the times the most conservative person would be like, yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. You know, and, you know, in my book, it's worth it. I gave a few stories about me talking to right wingers at my special place, Starbucks, when I was there before the pandemic. And it's amazing. I I remember being so concerned one time speaking to a woman because by the time our conversation was over, she thought I was a conservative Republican because of where I live inside of Starbucks. (laughs) And by the time it was all over, she was all into Medicare for all, never used the word Medicare for all, just use the things that I wanted to see in healthcare. Right. And I felt so guilty. I told the woman, ma'am, I'm, I, I hate to tell you this, or I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm one of your pinko liberals here in Kingwood, Texas. And what I just described was Medicare for all. And she was like, 
<gasps> you know, she said it was, but we were friends, you know, every time she sees me, you know. Well, I had the same experience with critical race theory, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that it is not taught in K-12. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I just want to say that before I talk about it. But what I did was I described what they are actually using in schools, you know, which is an anti-bias kind of thing. And basically, it's just learn to get along with other people and, and you know, love yourself and love your neighbors as yourself. <laughs> That's the kind of philosophy. Right. Well, I, had, I had it in a blog and, and there was an argument going on about critical race theory on Facebook. Right. So I asked this one lady if she would take the time to to look at the blog. And she did, which is unusual. Yeah. But but she came back and said, now, I can agree with that, but that's not what's happening in schools. Which is exactly what's happening in schools. (laughs) So but it's yeah. And that's what I mean. You know, they they really are doing a number on. With political language, you know, with tapping into the language that's going to hook people in and turn them off. Um, well, we that's what, that is what we are not about. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons when uh, you posted this, I, I contacted you as soon as I read it, because I'm like, this is the kind of material that we need to have out there coming from someone who understands what's going on. And so I'm in a I'm really happy that you wrote it. And you, you write a whole lot of good stuff. I've been reading your stuff for, for, for a long time now. But I took a break. I, I haven't written anything for a long time. And this is the topic. This, this is tops. Let me just tell you that. All right. I, I, I think you were on probably two or three years ago when right. we had something talking about the school. So I mean, it was like great. And, um, and really, uh, really, I've told you that before. Um, so. Anyhow, this is good. The, the last question that I always ask is usually the gotcha. And it goes Uh-oh. this way. You ready? Uh, I guess. <laughs> what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? <laughs> Ooh, well, actually, I would like to add something to the conversation. Go for like, it. So, so I don't know what the question would be. The question might be was... What did you find interesting when you cleaned your room today? <laughs> okay, what did you find interesting when you cleaned your room today? I found an old book that I had read a long time ago. Uh-huh. And, and what it, the title of it is, What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. And it says, We All Owe to Each Other Goodwill. Mutual respect and mutual guarantees of liberty and security. So, in the season of goodwill, that's what I wanted to add in. <laughs> well, you know what? I think that's a perfect segue for closure. So, Victoria right. Young, uh, for not former, but coffee party blogger, writer, author. Uh, thank you so kindly for having been. Okay, go ahead. What did I miss? And retired veterinarian. And retired veterinarian. Thank you so kindly for having well, thank been. Thank you. And I hope your family's doing well. My family's doing well. My daughter is getting better day by day, and we're working hard to make sure and keep it that way. All right. Thank you All so right. kindly Good for being on Politics Done Right. Bye. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. Folks, please don't forget, Politics Done Right needs your support in order to continue doing what we're doing in not only writing books, articles, blogs, uh, videos, etc., to saturate the 
environment with our progressive message, but to keep this all going. So please go to politicsunright.com slash support, politicsunright.com slash support to support us however you can. As well, you can go to politicsunright.com slash PayPal. And don't forget, go to our stores, politicsunright.com slash stores, as well as our uh, books, politicsunright.com slash books. Thank you so kindly. You know how I end this, baby. This is Politics Unright. I'm Egberto Willis. And I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.